0: This is episode 39 of Herpetological Highlights, I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting as always is Tom Major, and uh, we're back for a little episode about arboreal snakes. Yes, indeed.
1: Snakes which climb trees and do their activities sort of off the ground. Yeah, pretty simple to understand, right? Yeah, it's quite cool. Um, yeah, all three papers we're studying well, actually... Two of the papers we're doing today are about arboreal snakes, and then we've got our Species of the Bi-Week, which I won't ruin, but it's not necessarily arboreal. Yeah, but you can uh, it, it could be, you could never ruin. know. Yeah, i don't know. Um, but yeah, they're all from 2018, so this is a very modern, up-to-date, current, topical
0: podcast. Yes. Bi-Week. It's what we like. Which is cool. Shall we get yeah. started straight away and jump straight into the first one, first one, as it has some good summary stuff about arboreal snakes?
1: Yes, let's not dilly-dally, let's get on So.
0: Starting off, we've got a Harrington, Han, Shapiro, and, and Ruane. Uh, it's a 2018 paper, as Tom said. Habits and characteristics of arboreal snakes worldwide. Arboreality constrains body size, but does not affect lineage diversification, and is published in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society. So, I mean, that title pretty much spoils uh, their major finding, but we'll get into that in a little bit, a little bit <laughs> later. Um, <laughs> I suppose that that is a sign of a good title, really. You know exactly where it's going. Yeah, yeah, it is. But as you say, it's kind of a spoiler. (laughs) Yes. Um, So what are we looking at? We're looking at arboreal snakes and diversification rates and how an arboreal lifestyle may affect body size and shape. Yeah, Because it makes a lot of sense. If you're on the ground, you need a slightly different body than if you're in the tree. It
1: does make very good logical sense. I mean... um, yeah, you only have to... Think of a gibbon. Well, think of a gibbon. Yeah. They don't look like a man. They look different than us. Exactly. If we had those proportions... Have you seen a gibbon walk on the floor? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty <humiliating>. good. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen
0: so them try and drive cars? Up. They can't get the seat <laughs> firm enough back, but their legs are too short to read the pedals. It's a, it's a nightmare. Absolute nightmare. <laughs> well, they,
1: they have other skills. Not necessarily driving cars, but um, I mean, they're pretty good at eating fruit and... And uh, music. What... They're brachioderms, aren't they, gibbons? They move by swinging, um, which is actually really amazing. But yeah. Enough about gibbons. How
0: many species of arboreal snake are there? <laughs> um, 634 at least. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable. That's a nice fact right there, or sort I would, of fact. Yeah. we. That would have been a good quiz if I hadn't had the answer written in front of me. Yeah. And that's 17... i got it wrong. About 17% of all currently existing snakes.
1: Mm. It's pretty cool, actually, isn't it, to think that that high of a percentage of snakes have just taken to the
0: trees. Yeah. They really are a largely tree-dwelling branch of life. Well, it's it's quite remarkable, isn't it? Because it's not just a single, well, as we'll, we'll talk about, it's not a single family or single lineage that is alboreal, no, too. So it's it's appearing in quite diverse uh, families. You've got boas and pythons and sort of that Group and family. You've got mm-hmm. arboreal elapids. You've got arboreal colubrids. You've got all sorts. Real, loads real of mix. arboreal vipers. Yeah, of course, loads and loads of vipers. Yeah. So what this paper wanted to check out was number one: are we looking at sort of a snake-wide? Uh, like, are there are there commonalities to the way bodies change to deal with arboreality, and uh, are diversification rates different in arboreal snakes to terrestrial snakes? Now, the, the mm-hmm. justification slash motivation behind this is ancestrally you're thinking snakes are terrestrial, right? And so arboreality yeah. is something that has, or even,
1: or even marine originally, originally potentially.
0: Maybe yeah, yeah we won't get into that debate as such but like we'll, we'll go with the terrestrial fossorial basically yeah any, they didn't they're not arboreal is the point they they didn't start off in the trees yeah 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 so it tends to be the case that when you uh colonize a new niche or zone like moving up into the trees you tend to get rapid diversification to fill up all the niches and make n- new use of this newly available resource right it makes sense it's what i'd do yeah, well, you <laughs> you, <laughs> no. you and your species like, oh, we're here. You, <laughs> yeah. you grow really long I, arms. You grow really long legs. You get a weird beak that can eat seeds. Mate, if there was really delicious fruits,
1: I'd concentrate really hard and I'd grow my arms and I'd begin to bracket them all over the place. Yeah,
0: and be able to reach those fruits and recognize the ones that exactly. would kill
1: you. No, but you're absolutely right. If there's a nice niche for an animal that inhabits a tree, you know, for example, if there's lots of lizards scrambling around in said tree, you can pretty much guarantee that one snake or another
0: is going to, over time, end up in that tree also. Right, exactly. Exactly. It's all going to sort of shift upwards and fill these available niches. And the more niches, the more diversification. Or at least that's the sort of logic. But this Mm. paper's... The idea is to actually test that. So... Big literature review, grabbing all information they can about whether a snake's arboreal or not, splitting that up by species, and then sort of applying that to already created uh, phylogenetic trees. So there's been quite a lot mm-hmm. of work done in the past um, of building a big uh, tree of life for snakes. Yeah, so you've it's got getting this quite good. Yeah.
1: And um, yeah, they characterised snakes based on whether or not they were arboreal. But like you say, by literature review, but it's not enough to see a snake in a bush. That doesn't necessarily qualify yes. it as uh, as arboreal. They were they're saying that if they had one incidence of a snake in a bush, it doesn't count. They need multiple, you know, be it behavioural notes or you know feeding records or anything. But these snakes need to be to qualify as even semi arboreal. They need to be seen in a in a tree or a bush more than once uh, in the scientific literature. Yeah, and they did have to exclude a fair few species because they're just. Weren't enough information on well those. see,
0: that's, that's um, interesting to bring up because you okay 634 species are arboreal or semi-arboreal but there's going to be a good chance that there are more that just haven't been properly documented yet they've just got a couple of behavioral notes which aren't sufficient to put them in the semi-arboreal category I mean I yeah yeah you know that
1: interesting one of the, the snakes that they said they had no data for but they suspect maybe arboreal, is Vipera Beris, the adder.
0: Not sure about that one. Hmm. I suppose semi-arboreal in, like, bits of heather and stuff? Yeah, I know, but what do you
1: constitute as arboreal? Like, I don't know. That seems very strange to me, but... Yeah. Yeah. Just thought that was worth bringing up. Maybe there's Um, a little population that loves trees. Who knows? talis atrox as well that's a big heavy snake i yeah. can't imagine they're semi
0: arboreal but wait yeah. were those included in the data set or just actively included no, as arboreal semi-arboreal so so they were they said they suspected
1: they are are arboreal but there wasn't enough data
0: oh okay yeah
1: seems i don't right. I just want to say I don't suspect they're arboreal <laughs> no <laughs> like I say I don't know about, the, uh, about what exactly constitutes arboreal. Because you're right, if, if, if sitting on top of heather counts as semi-arboreal, then they are, probably.
0: Well, and I feel there's an additional uh, level of complexity with this when you're dealing with ontogenetic shifts. If you, I mean, yeah, I'm right, going to sure. bring up the Komodo dragon example because it's such a good example, but there are examples in snakes of neonates and juvies using trees more than adults yeah, king cobras are a fine example of that, right? Well, exactly. Spot on. So, but then the adults are not purely terrestrial anyway. So that as a species would be classified as semi-arboreal, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Provided true. there's enough information out there on the arboreal habits. Yeah. Which Yeah. I'm not sure there is off the top of my head. I don't know. Hmm. I guess it depends what
1: um, environment you're studying them as well. They're that probably too. pretty plastic. Yeah.
0: Well, potential um, species complex. I mean, yeah, just lump all the complexity onto that. But yeah.
1: yeah. Burmese pythons are another one which is supposed to be quite arboreal as um, juveniles and then obviously get a bit too big and heavy, a bit too cumbersome in the trees when they get yeah, big. Yeah,
0: but you still occasionally see them in trees. Like, not frequently, yeah. but it, it, it does happen.
1: It's true. So, again, yeah, another semi
0: arboreal one, most likely.
1: Yeah, there are photos of big rock pythons in Africa as well. Obviously a different species, but relatively similar. And you see them up in trees as adults. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's conceivable.
1: Yeah, I think probably um, when you start thinking about it, actually, it's not that surprising there's that many semi-arboreal or arboreal species because trees are a pretty good resource if you've got a way of getting into them.
0: Yes. And sort of backing that up is the more trees you've got, the more likely you are to have arboreal snakes. Because most arboreal snakes are from the Neotropics and like Indo-Malayan uh, regions. So between those two areas, it's well over fifty percent of arboreal snakes from that sort of where you're going to have these sort of decent uh, multi-storied forests. Mhm. Yeah, so, that's a cool fact. All seems yeah. to
1: tally up. It be... Reached- Snakes, you know, if you're a uh, if you're an arboreal snake in
0: a desert with one cactus every 20 miles, you're not doing the right thing, are you? No, well, there's no point. Was, yeah, what's there up there to get? Mm. Uh, well, what's another cool little fact they found out? It was a 60-40 split between nocturnal and diurnal. So if mm, you pick up yep. a snake from a bush, the chances are it's nighttime. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: I enjoyed their kind of uh, generic... They invented like a, a, a generic arboreal snake, like what you'd expect yes. if you... Randomly picked one and they said, sort of, the most common, like, generic arboreal snake is neotropical, nocturnal, oviparous. So it's laying eggs, um, it's eating reptiles, and it's either brown or banded or patterned. And um, they used uh, the genus Imantides, which are like the slug eating snakes, hmm. um, as like the perfect generic, uh, like, arboreal snake. Which I it made me cool.
0: think of um,
1: brown tree snakes as well. Yeah, definitely. Arrest. I mean, they fit all of those categories. Yeah. Except. I'm not sure if. Actually, yeah, no. They're obviously not neotropical, but yeah. Aside from that, they're exactly the same. But yeah, they had some other cool facts. Should we do some more cool facts? If you've got were... more cool facts, I'm 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 running low. <laughs> okay, so um, they're usually brown or black. our snakes? Seventy percent are brown or black. Sixty-seven um, percent are patterned. Uh, 24% are green, which, you know, the best ones are green, all green pit vipers. Yee! Um, oh, yeah. Mm. There's some controversial. Yeah, I would say controversial. <laughs> uh, 27% are uniformly colored. So that's quite common as well. Um, so yeah, you get, you're starting to get an idea.
0: And this is um, interesting because you start thinking about, okay, what in an arboreal lifestyle is driving those sort of, uh... Those changes, what makes those more beneficial in an arboreal habitat compared to a terrestrial one? And certainly consistent colour might be background matching sort of thing, not needing to break up your shape as much because there's similar things shaped more snake-like, like like vines and things. So maybe a slightly relaxed pressure on that as opposed to trying to camouflage against twigs and rocks. Mm. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if there was a difference in um,
1: coloration among snakes which inhabit different layers of the canopy. I don't think they went as far as that.
0: Mm, That would
1: require some pretty detailed natural history of these guys. It it would. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's possible probably yet. But I bet you that'd be... I bet you you that'd turn something up. Like, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Mm. But, um, yeah, one other thing which is interesting is that it's much more likely for arboreal snakes to eat mollusks. Um, Yeah. 12% Twelve percent feed mo- feed on mollusks. Um, than other, it's much more likely than them eating other invertebrates or eggs. So, yeah, slugs and snails and things like that.
0: But uh, did you read about the species that eats fish? No. Ah, because uh, that sort of it's like, how on earth do you have an arboreal species that eats fish? That's absurd. Are fish living in trees? No, they're not living in trees. This this snake, uh, Ayotula. Uh, frontis syncta. oh right yeah yeah sincta (laughs) right Uh, yeah sits above the water and takes out fish from the water and there's a little video that I'll put in the show notes from the California Academy of Science where they have a bunch of captive ones and they put some fish in this little pool and all these captive snakes come shooting over all this uh, vegetation (laughs) and just start plucking fish out of this uh, little pool of water it's really quite impressive that's amazing. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah.
1: Oh, what a cool snake. They're like a uh, Well, they just look like any other ayatollah with a less pointy nose.
0: But they're just sort of okay, well done guys. You've you've moved to being arboreal, but you haven't really caught the memo on perhaps eating arboreal prey. Maybe that's huh. easier. <laughs> Seems like a very odd. Well I, see, I would
1: think I would I would imagine it probably went the other way, didn't it? Like they were arboreal and, and then they, they got started the opportunity to explain fish. uh fish yeah yeah, they're cool they are really cool I love that genus i would not heard of that one Frontacinctor, that did you read the DAS paper then
0: no I didn't ah oh, be interesting I'm going to check that one out because oh, I'm not cool. sure that's a paper I think that's a field guide is it DAS 2010 uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that's the field, field guide. guide
1: yeah oh I might actually own that field
0: guide though yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a it's, yeah <laughs> it's the guide to Southeast Asian reptiles is it the big thick fat one uh not the super thick fat one, but the the field guide the regular not- field guide sized one. Uh sort of bluish cover. Okay. Has uh yeah. illustrations on the front. Uh-huh.
1: Oh, is it the one with illustrations throughout it as yes. well? Yes. yes. Oh, okay, yeah, no, I don't own that book. I like that book though. Cool. Anyway, do we digress? Um so what else did they find? They found out that um over half of the world's arboreal species are found in two colubrid subfamilies, which are
0: sometimes referred
1: to as families. But um, uh. Colubrinae and Dipsadinae.
0: Yes. What a so what a Dipsadenae, surprise that most snake species were in something to do with Calubridae.
1: Yeah, exactly. The most like, species <laughs> family ever. But Dipsadinae of all the of all the snake genuses, Dipsadinae are probably the most mysterious sorry, not genuses, um subfamilies. Dipsadinae are probably the most mysterious to me. I think it's because they're never really Spent any real time researching um, snakes from the neotropics, yeah, as we now call Yeah, that it. is a
0: little bit of a blind spot between us, actually, isn't it?
1: Yeah, like Emantides Radanea. I've heard of them. We did a Radanea species, mm. you know, like Alsophis, all these ones. But they are still, like, sort of obscure and exciting to me. It's um. What else did they find out? What, what else were they Um saying?
0: They suggested that there might be some scope to look at the association of venom and arboreal lifestyles uh they didn't do it in this analysis but they sort of suggested that it might it has some sort of logical uh, uh what's the right word prey handling kind of implication i guess yeah it, it makes so, a lot of sense that if you're in an arboreal environment you want to subdue your prey really really quickly yeah i mean in
1: many ways arboreal is closer to sort of being underwater isn't it because it's so much more three-dimensional
0: yeah and you've got this whole thing of gravity acting on you so if you've having to buffer against things you've got less surface to do that and uh mm. you don't want something to just to drop out of the tree and get away from you and if it does drop yeah. out of the tree and get away from you you want to make sure that it's dead by the time it reaches the ground
1: mm.
0: that could actually be a, a pretty good tactic <laughs> to <Just> chuck
1: stuff <laughs> down go find it but i, I would i mean most of oral snakes probably don't
0: like to be on the ground if they're truly are because it's probably a much more dangerous place yeah mm but it was an interesting little thing to bring in because it's it again, it's how does this arboreal lifestyle affect the evolution of certain traits? Hmm. I suppose that leads into actually what they did find. And, uh, what they did find is that arboreal snakes do appear to be tending towards a, a optimum size and body sort of shape. So they have larger bodies than non arboreal snakes in terms of, and they are sort of, uh, what what's the term they used? Laterally compressed. Was that yeah, right? Yeah, laterally compressed. Yeah, they're flatter. Mm. Yeah, so larger bodies but flatter. Mm. Like bread rolls rather than loaves of bread. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, like baguettes. Yeah, they're like baguettes. Yeah, that's actually the, the perfect analogy. Um,
0: they're not hot dogs. They're baguettes. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, fine. That will do. <laughs> But the the point is that there does seem to be a a more optimal size for arboreal snakes. And it does appear to be different from terrestrial snakes. But what they didn't find is any increased uh, diversification rates. And what it might be is that the arboreality requires this certain body setup and a certain optimum that that's constraining the diversification a little bit. So things are being, yeah, constrained, but also pushed in a quite unified direction.
1: Yeah. Yeah? Yeah.
0: Yeah, laterally flattened. Laterally flattened. There you go. So they are
1: kind of actually thin and high rather than being flat. Yes. We might have explained that kind of in a weird way. It's kind of hard to get your head around.
0: Well, they're they're, Um,
1: they're tall. Yeah, they're tall. Their bodies are tall. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah, and so they're actually yeah, they're like a
0: a baguette on its side. Yes, <laughs> there you go, a baguette on its side, because that's a <laughs> that's a perfect image of a s- snake. Here we go. It's also crown. You know. Yes, yeah. This is the best way to describe it. If you imagine
1: a gaboon viper, yeah, that is dorso ventrally flattened. It's a big fat pancake.
0: Yes, it's the opposite of that.
1: Yeah, it's the opposite of that.
0: Also, they're super chubby anyway. I, I think that's quite an extreme example. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. Of course it is. They're comical. Um, Maya's parents are in South Africa at the moment on holiday, and they saw a puff adder the other day, and they saw a cape cobra. Damn. No photo of the cape cobra is too fast, but the puff adder... Jealous. Oh, boy. Yeah. Little chubby baby one as well. It's so cute. Oh, man. Yeah.
0: One day. One day one day yeah um right what else we got to say about this paper what else we got to say uh general diversification rates were variable as well so it's not to say that everything is constrained and slow it's just that there is no connection between the diversification rates and arboreal uh, lifestyles Mm. yeah so something else maybe driving that and having a, bi- a bigger impact, but it doesn't appear to be arboreality.
1: Mm. Yeah. And they, they don't get quite as long as the flat ground-dwelling snakes, or at least generally they don't seem to. There seems to be a limit on how big an arboreal snake can be.
0: Yes, there is this optimum that things tend to be tending towards, and it seems to be... They brought up that it's quite uh, clear to see in vipers especially. Mm. Which, when you when you think about terrestrial vipers and arboreal vipers... Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like the Mm Gaboon Viper is an extreme but excellent example you brought up. Yeah. You would never expect to see that thing in a tree. No. And if you did, you'd expect that it was somebody's (laughs) cruel joke. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be so upset by being up there. (laughs) Help. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: Cool. Sweet. So should we move on to paper two? Um, Oh, one final thing I suppose I can mention is that there was a cool study they cited by Alan et al 2013 paper that's looking at the pattern of snakes and although they their focus was mainly on uh, Australian snakes so may not be fully representative of arboreal snakes is that they were suggesting uh longitudinal stripes may be best for fleeing snakes uh that are terrestrial because you don't see longitudinal stripes in arboreal snakes very frequently um so there may be some cool patterns in snake patternation between terrestrial and arboreal snakes that may be linked to crypsis and uh defensive behaviors cool dazzle
1: yeah what's that called it's like yeah. go faster stripes motion dazzle type of thing yeah, yeah that's yeah, yeah. cool hmm. very cool so i'm sure there's something written about that about annals Oh my gosh! There always is. Yeah, cool. Oh, good stuff. Nice one. So, uh, yeah, should we talk about a very famous arboreal snake?
0: Ah, yes, we should. Which has already yeah. been brought up so far, right? Yes, it has. I think. I think one of us all has mentioned it. So the
1: second paper is Sears. Yackel Adams and Reed, 2018. Behavioural Differences Following Ingestion of Large Meals and Consequences for Management of a Harmful Invasive Snake, a Field Experiment, published in Ecology and Evolution. Uh, again, this
0: year, so good stuff. This is a um, big paper.
1: Yes, it is a bit of a tome, No, it's a good paper. pages
0: of snake fact goodness.
1: Yeah. So, it's a harmful invasive snake in the title, uh, and we've already said it's arboreal, so it's not going to be many people that can't guess which species we're talking about it is of course Boiga irregularis the brown tree snake and um, this is a big snake gets to be up to three meters long uh, but skinny 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 Uh, and of course dorsolaterally flattened Um, (laughs) and yeah so the brown tree snakes are native to like Melanesia northern Australia um, Papua New Guinea and they were introduced by accident to Guam in the 1940s. Everyone knows the story. Um, mostly blamed on Allied shipping, kind of, during and after World War Two. sometime. They were definitely on Guam before 1952. Um, and then since they've arrived, they've just caused cataclysmic changes to the fauna of Guam. They've eaten all the birds, basically uh it's been a lot of extinctions i think it's like 13 bird species have gone extinct something along those
0: lines yeah um, it's, it's so frequently used as the example of a invasive species leading directly to uh, native species extinctions because it is it, it yeah. very much has that one-to-one cause and effect going on or at least you know it, it seems pretty clear that that's what's uh what's going on they are just eating them
1: Yeah, the evidence is pretty undeniable that the brown tree snake's just eaten their way through a lot of the stuff that was in Guam. Um, uh, And they exist at, like, incredibly high densities as well. Um, Not so much now, but when they were first there, it was just ridiculous. Like, I think Mm. they were saying... I can't remember what they said. There's, like, 120... Like, 25 per hectare now? Or something like that? Which is... A lot. (laughs) A lot. That's a lot. Like, yeah, a lot. 25 snakes on a rugby pitch. Like, it's crazy. Um, But, yeah, so... Uh, One thing they highlighted... Sorry.
0: sorry. In the 1980s, it was being measured as 50 snakes per hectare. It's crazy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I guess that was when all the prey was still super abundant, whereas now they've probably eaten most of it. So there's less of them, I would imagine. Yeah, Yeah. maybe. Mm. Uh, But yeah, so one thing they pointed out is that a snake is the only terrestrial vertebrate that specializes in swallowing whole prey. I never actually
0: considered that before. Well, it depends if you're I don't know, Oh, I suppose specialising. I was thinking of if you eat an M&M poorly, but uh, it's not really specialisation, is it? That's just an accident.
1: Yeah, but Ben, what you got to remember is before you eat the M&M, someone's chiselled it off the main M&M. Oh,
0: oh that's a good point. The matriarch mm, for the m M&M. Yeah, they don't
1: dig them up that size. They yeah. have to manufacture them.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, uh, do you want a cool fact? Another... Sorry, <laughs> sorry, just to, get, just to get stupidness out, go out of the way. Um, they they bring up a paper that I I had to go look up um, mainly because of the the second author was Jay Diamond. I was like, is that Jared Diamond, the guy who wrote uh, what was it Guns, Germs, and uh, something else the the book that's all about societal collapse which I remember reading in Geography Mm -hmm. Undergrad stuff. I was like, no, he can't have written about snakes as well. That's really weird. Um, Totally is. It's totally him. Or at least it's a guy with the same name. Yes. (laughs) So there's a paper by Secor and Diamond, a Nature Communications paper, in fact, that's looking at how um, Pythons specifically...
1: Hmm. I pulled this one out as well. It's very cool.
0: brilliant isn't it what type of python is it oh it's burmese pythons what a surprise yeah they were Um, babies as well yeah how their sort of internal structure and things change when they're digesting you know what they have to do to digest such huge meals because oh man i just love this paper for its little analogies that it's got dotted through so you imagine a person weighing 62 kilograms you know that's not a Crazy huge person, but they're not crazy small. Uh, if they were a Burmese python, they would be able to eat a meal weighing 100 kilograms in a single swallow. A small child? What do you mean a small child? Wait, what did you say? If Who would be able to eat a meal? Someone who weighed about 62 kilograms.
1: Oh, right. Could okay. eat 100 so, like,
0: kilograms in one go. So what weighs 100 100 kilograms. A hundred bags of sugar. Ah, oh,
1: gosh, that'd be so hard to chew and swallow. Yeah, it'd be really powdery. So wow. So I'm just trying to think of something which is relatable, like
0: that's a hundred kilograms.
1: That's just so much food. Other than yeah Oh, yeah. Hmm.
0: It's like a hundred liters of mayonnaise. Well, it's like a hundred liters of anything. But can you conceive eating 100 litres of mayonnaise? Uh, not at one sitting. No. Well,
1: that's what a Burmese python would do. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody maniacs. That's hideous. That's hideous. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, they also had that one in there, which um, the oxygen consumption yes. of Burmese pythons when they're digesting is unreal. So they, they use 44 times more oxygen when they're digesting a meal than when they're at rest fasting which is just bananas. The highest known change for a mammal is when a dog has its dinner, it uses twice as much oxygen for a little while. Um, (laughs) 44 times is equivalent to a horse at gallop. So not a trot, a canter, no, a gallop, like a horse running full pelt, the fastest a horse can possibly run, which obviously it can only keep up for a matter of seconds or minutes at best. Um, So yeah, 44 times
0: more oxygen. So yeah, so just a python sitting there is the same increase in oxygen consumption as a horse going from standing still to galloping. It's crazy, isn't it? It makes sense, though, because when you've got that massive meal in there,
1: um, they don't want it to go off because that's a serious risk of putrefaction. if
0: the, Yeah, well, and if, you, have you read some of the other stuff in this paper of the, the changes that occur and how rapidly they're changing? You've got a, a stomach pH that starts relatively neutral at around 7 and drops to 1. Within a day. Oh my word. What's our stomach's pH? Uh I don't know. I think ours is more consistently acidic. Like okay, around ours is 1.5 one point five to three point five. Okay, I was gonna say one or two. Because I know dogs yeah. are just slightly higher than uh, slightly lower on the pH scale than ours. Right. Yeah. So every day burn without food, relatively neutral stomach, but then suddenly all this stuff basically turns on the secretion of the acid turns on during this period all that energy goes towards creating that which also explains a little bit of how snakes do such a good job going without a meal because they're not expending energy producing digestive acids that they're not using until they need it and then they use it really intensively
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and their intestines shrink out and nothing and then swell up again when they actually need them
0: yeah so within the first sort of one to three days you're seeing fifty to hundred percent increase in mass of stomach, liver, pancreas, heart, lungs, and kidney. It's so just, just mental what? Everything's just getting bigger and being like turned back on. It's crazy. Blood flow increases three to five times the heart rate along you imagine, along with that. Can you imagine how that feels? It's it's like they being it's powered like, up it's ridiculous eat your food yeah you're like
1: whoa you know like when Alice in Wonderland she eats a little bit of bread yeah she just becomes ginormous uh, that's what's happening to your insides every down, time you have, have dinner a,
0: have a cheese toasty suddenly your heart rate's going five times as fast and your yeah. <laughs> and your stomach's expanding yeah. 100% you're, you're breathing 44% it 44 feels like times more oxygen you're <laughs> sprinting <laughs> <laughs> Jesus I'd
1: be freaking out I'd hate it I don't want this well this is why I they just sit and
0: don't do it for so long yeah being a snake is hard work <sighs> yeah so sort of Jeez. linking linking that back to the actual paper we're talking about that sort of made, on,
1: impact go on,
0: yeah. is going to change behavior it's going to change everything oh. that the snake is doing because it's such a dramatic yeah. internal change that puts it in context doesn't it like seriously what on earth you couldn't do anything other than chill and all that's going yeah on. well <laughs> i mean you yeah if your body's acting like it's full-on sprinting what can you do while sprinting uh pretty much sprinting and nothing else right yeah <laughs> so 100%, i mean it's, it's then replace that with digesting and <laughs> there you go you're gonna sit there like and digest
1: to, <laughs> i like to imagine that the snakes actually love the feeling when they eat. like you know it's like a crazy high to them and they spend their whole lives trying to
0: find the high just getting that slightly it's- larger meal that bigger food, They just can't wait. Yeah, the yeah, bigger I food, the better. The equivalent just, of 100 ah. kilograms last time. Let's push it to 101 <laughs> this time. It's mad. Oh, I love it. Um, yeah, so that puts
1: in context the kind of um, sort of motivation behind this study. They wanted to see whether or not they'd behave differently. Um, and there are examples of snakes behaving differently in the literature. Um, in one of the papers, they talk, well, actually, they say they only could think of two studies uh, involving documentation of post-feeding ecology but actually I know of another one which they didn't mention in this paper which is um, by Glaudas et al 2017 uh, so Xavier Glaudas led that one He's actually, um, he works for Wolfgang now he's doing some uh, radio telemetry stuff on uh, Russell's vipers in India, they've just got going they just uh, got their first radio, first radio
0: transmitter. I in. hope they're recording non-moves um, uh, I'm sure they are, yeah I wouldn't be <laughs> <laughs> I've done a big lit review and you'll be surprised how many studies don't do that.
1: <laughs> well, maybe
0: I'll, maybe I'll speak to Zabie and find out. Just uh, um,
1: maybe double check. Uh, he So he did all the stuff on um, puff adders, which we read previously, you know, like the lingual luring and stuff. Yeah. Um, he was part of all that. And they did some supplementary feeding of the puff adders. Um, and they found that ones they fed, spent less time foraging and moved shorter distances than those which hadn't been fed. Um, which, you know, if you feed a puff adder, it's going to relax, basically.
0: Mm. Uh, as we've just been saying, makes a lot of sense. And I think um, there was also a supplementary feeding study on. Uh, black rat snakes? No, no, I was thinking Bofriacus. Perhaps. That might be the one I haven't made a note of. The Wasco oh, and Sasa paper, I believe. I don't have it. This is just me remembering a paper. So if I'm wrong. I'm wrong. So the ones they mentioned in the paper were Desert
1: Rattlesnakes, which was Beck, 1996. And also Blue and Demas and Weatherhead did one. That's the on, rat snake one. Yeah. Black rat snakes. Pantherovus obsoleta. That one was cool because they found out... What they found is actually their, their snakes, which were fed, moved more... Um, and they attributed that to the fact that they were trying to find a decent refuge with an appropriate thermal environment. Yeah. So actually immediately after eating they were kind of frantically trying to find somewhere that was suitable to digest, which is interesting because they're actually obviously more temperate of a species.
0: Hmm. So what um, you're actually maybe what you need to be looking at there is a is a sort of a lag. Right? Yeah. And yes, it was sorry, it was, it was Bofrops, asper uh Vasco and Sassa 2012. And they did supplementary feeding and looked at I'm what they were doing. Well, not supplementary, but. Positive, it was supplementary feeding with relation to habitat and home range. Yeah, supplementary mm. feeding of six adult snakes.
1: Cool, cool. Um, so, yeah, there were a couple of buzz that they didn't catch it, but that's the way it goes. Um, yeah, so lots of things to consider um, for a snake that's just eaten. Um, They're also slower after they eat. So they mentioned in their um, paper that there's been some studies on uh, garter snakes. And if you eat 50%, um, well, I don't know what that means. Mm, shouldn't have said that. Basically, after (laughs) after garter snakes eat, they can't sprint as fast, which is a funny thing to consider because snakes don't really sprint anyway, but they can't slither as quickly. Um, Their average speed and their top speed are both reduced and their endurance is also reduced. And the same goes for trinket snakes. Um, So when they tried... Well, basically, when they tricked them into thinking there was a predator, they just weren't as good at getting away. Mm. And then um, there's also some suggestion that snakes which have eaten are more aggressive. So rather than trying to... Yes, yes. That's a good point. Yeah, I shouldn't say that. That is a cardinal sin, isn't it? Yeah, it is. (laughs) There's no such thing as an aggressive snake, people. Um, Yeah, they're more defensive. Um, They're, well what I should say is their defensive mechanisms are more likely to err on the side of things like biting when they are full because they're not so good at getting away um, yeah. which makes sense I once caught an escalapian snake with my sample size of one that had a massive bolus and it bit me a lot like it was really <laughs> like really compared to others it was like really really upset um, which obviously sucks but yeah like that's just one Nevertheless, it was a bit awkward as well because I was in front of a homeowner who called me and the snake was just biting me and I was like, ah! (laughs) Yeah, Uh, don't worry about it. They always do this. This is a sign of affection. He's like, you're bleeding. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It'll it'll Uh, stop eventually. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, we're back to brown tree snakes anyway. So the idea behind this paper obviously they're public enemy number one in guam um but if they're going to be hiding all the time after they eat it could present a problem for people who are trying to find them catch them and eradicate them because if they need to chill for a bit after they eat they're not going to be out they're not going to be hiding
0: mm. um,
1: so what they were expecting to see they used radio telemetry on these snakes um and they were looking to find out whether or not they had reduced activity um making shorter movements uh, selecting different resting locations, and basically whether or not they were going to be harder to find by either visual searching or trapping, and um, yeah,
0: it's worth experiment... mentioning. It's worth mentioning that there's there's good uh, human motivation behind this study as well, because apparently these snakes have a tendency to cause power outages and have caused caused four point five million uh, dollars worth of damage a year over the past over a seven year period from uh power outages and sort of electro <laughs> electrical damage like that yeah and the cynic in me thinks the only reason these snakes are so well studied
1: is because the american air force base on guam is fed up with not being able to watch television
0: oh <laughs> uh, well that might be a very good uh yeah that or might, doing whatever that might other stuff it.
1: they do playing war and pretending to fire missiles and stuff like yeah, that war probably games.
0: yeah hindered by brown tree snakes so they gotta go they gotta go um I, it sound, sounds horrible dude, this poor snake going over some wires and accidentally connecting to and just getting fried so, oh, it's horrific yeah I know.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. yeah it is actually really grim um, but yeah such is life I guess or, oh, and death. death Yeah. death as much a part of life as life itself um, yeah so they did this experiment in the US Geological Survey's Brown Tree Stake study enclosure so they've actually got this like five hectare parcel of limestone forest mm. which is surrounded by a two-way snake barrier, snake so snakes prison. can't get in, snakes can't get out. It is, but I didn't realize that... I tried to understand the description of the snake prison, and I couldn't. There's like a <laughs> bol- there's like a bulbous lump halfway up the fence, and they can't get over it?
0: Yes. Think, I, think of, think of the of fences that. they have to prevent gibbons from escaping, and you're on the right path. I've never seen a gibbon fence like that. Oh. Where have you seen a gibbon fence? Monkey World?
1: Who are you... In- Oh, Monkey World. Oh, wow. It's been a long time since I've been to Monkey World, and I i was probably more perturbed by the fact I couldn't see any damn monkeys. <laughs> you always I see need monkeys to keep them in... in Monkey World. What are you talking about? No, I need to... When I went to Monkey World, all I thought was, they need to keep these monkeys in smaller
0: cages. I can't barely see them. <laughs> <laughs> curse their curse dedication to good monkey conditions.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, god damn. Where are they?
0: Hiding in the trees. <laughs> Get them in a little tiny box so I can make sure I can see them. Also, we're um, calling all these 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 apes monkeys. Is that that's not good practice? A gibbon's a monkey. They're, no, they're not. They're lesser apes. Oh, come off it. No, I'm serious. <laughs> they're lesser apes. Yeah, you're right. You are right. You are cruelly, but that's what yeah. it is.
1: Don't have a tail, do they? That's weird.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. So um, talking about brown tree snakes again Um, (laughs) they had some really cool methods they didn't just use regular they didn't use regular radio telemetry well they did but they also used this like um, sort of remote data logging radio telemetry where they had special transmitters which if the snake changes its orientation by 10 degrees so if the snake angles its body but differently by 10 degrees the pulse rate of the transmitter changes and the data logger that they have actually records that change Mm. and so based on the frequency that the pulse rate is changing, you get an impression of how active the snake is. It doesn't tell you how far it's going, um, you know, or what it's doing, but it tells you whether or not it's moving around, which for a study like this is quite interesting because obviously they were checking to see whether or not the snakes are less active after they eat. They were using normal radio telemetry to see how far they were going. Admittedly, they only checked once a day.
0: Yeah, I've got, I think there's some little issues with their spatial stuff in this one, but it's, it's very much a side aspect yeah
1: they do actually address it quite well as well yeah they they absolutely do it's like yeah um but yeah so this method of um data logging the activity is really really cool um i'm really excited by it i'm i have i have ideas to try something similar with escalapian snakes because they're so restricted Mm. um the nature of the topography of where we're doing ours might be prohibitive but yeah we're trying to work something out to do with this i think it's really cool um, you might have to. You yeah. might
0: have to be a bit more sensitive than ten degrees. So for your guys,
1: yeah, I was Depends. trying to imagine what ten degrees actually would be. I mean, the ideal thing would be to stick an accelerometer in a snake, but um,
0: they're too small. Yeah, I mean, all, all it would have maybe. to like if you if you're counting inactivity as just like not moving at all. Yeah, you know, just having it a bit more sensitive, like five degrees or seven and a half degrees. You're just mm, gonna. You might yeah. get some. Uh, like more well, noise then, during inactivity periods, but it should still be different from actively moving, right?
1: Yeah, so that should yeah, be yeah, just yeah. going and off like
0: crazy if it's more sensitive.
1: Yeah, definitely. And uh, these transmitters, you can definitely um, modify the degree of which the movement is. Because oh, yeah. on the Hollyhill, on the Hollyhill website, I think they use PD 2s and on their website, it's even more sort of rough scale than what they use. So yeah, yeah. no, I think it's really, I think it's a cool thing. It would be really interesting to see. And like, if you, well, we can talk about their findings anyway. When you look at their diagrams, they basically come out with these sort of... um, Heat maps. How to describe it? Yeah, well, it is essentially a heat map of when, of what hours of the day the snakes are active. And then also they've got these like, you know, they've got time along the bottom. Mm. And you can just see like, obviously they've run some pretty sophisticated R code on it and stuff. But there's just all these little black specs where the snake's moving around and you can see when they're still and you can see where they're moving and it's so cool to see that they're so unbelievably predictable in their movements the snakes as a collective um so this is a species which is like really obviously nocturnal as soon as it gets dark at six o'clock they start to wiggle around and do stuff and they're sort of mostly active well they're more active in the sort of first five six hours of darkness. And then
0: it sort of starts to tail off. Well, you can the presume orient. it's getting a little bit cooler at that point and activities are sort of waning anyway. Yeah, they're just like,
1: yeah, yeah they've just, they've had it. Um, but yeah, uh, you could also see, because obviously the whole point of this was uh, to test whether or not there's a difference between snakes which had eaten and snakes which hadn't eaten. And you can see immediately once you look at that diagram, the ones which had eaten, they're chilling.
0: <laughs> the ones oh, yeah. which haven't eaten. Have you mentioned that this is supplementary feeding? So they've got 62 snakes and a bunch of them are are fed, you know, given meals. And then they're tracked Mm -hmm. for the subsequent seven days afterwards. I believe they're ingested transmitters as well, right?
1: Yeah, they fed them the transmitters. Yeah, so it's transmitter
0: in the meal. They give them the meal, then they track them and pick up this activity afterwards. The control group are not fed. They're just fed transmitters.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they massage a transmitter down the snake, or they massage a mouse hiding a transmitter. Yeah. Although actually, no, no, the snakes actually seem to eat the mice when they were put in captivity with them, which is quite good. So they actually had a transmitter sewed inside a dead mouse, and then the snakes would eat that if they were left in a box with it overnight. Um, which speaks volumes about like the voraciousness of a brown tree snake anyway. Yeah. You can catch it in the wild on a day put it in a box overnight with a dead mouse and it'll eat it like any other snake i would imagine would be like really stressed out by that yeah (laughs) but not the brown tree snake they're just voracious
0: ready to go Um,
1: yeah but yeah so like you say they did that and then they compared the activities using these um radio transmitters and yeah they were just way more active after eating and it seemed to be that The snakes which we had eaten were more like to spend the day doing things like curling up in trees or in these like screw palms that they have in Guam. They also tended to be higher up, which the authors suggested might be due to the fact that they're trying to thermoregulate and Mm. get warmer. It would make sense that uh, there'd be better thermoregulation opportunities higher in palms, especially when you've got a relatively thick, dense canopy. And if you're trying to digest as fast as you can, then there's going to be an optimum temperature for that. and You don't want it to start going rotten, as we talked about. Um, They also talked about their uh, distance moved, uh, which is, I think, the bit that you picked up on, Ben, which isn't necessarily the best measure.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, there's there's quite, there's there's sort of several issues. Number one, they're using daily relocations. But if you're tracking and only get movements a day, then that's quite a coarse estimate of, relocations you're also dealing with snakes in a constrained environment so that could also be limiting it because if it could move around lots and it's going to bounce back to the same area anyway so you've already got a a hard limit on your maximum move um yeah i'm not surprised they didn't find too much with the daily relocation stuff because it's there are so many of these little limiting things but it's not like it undermines it in any particular way because everything else is backing this up absolutely perfectly.
1: Yeah. I think the um the activity patterns are what lends a
0: lot of weight to this. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the, the movement it, stuff could almost have been dropped. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they um, I suppose I think they, they did it, it and they left it because it's a non-significant result, which is good practice. Yeah. I agree with. But I think that the way it's designed is yeah it's got it's got
1: problems it's not they really should have been tracking the snakes through the night at least a couple of times because then you could see a hungry snake is going to be cutting a long winding path from one day's refugia to the next whereas a full snake it probably won't be it might not be we can only you know
0: you can only make suggestions but yeah even then i'm not sure it would fix it though because you're in this limited area and things so yeah yeah five five hectares is the area Five hectares. Yeah, that's yeah, but I mean, pretty small, man.
1: Yeah, but I mean, if a snake's foraging around and you check it a few times, it could be all over the place in the course of a night. Yeah. Anyway, we don't know because they didn't we do don't, it. But we
0: don't, but the one... The,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, well, I'll tell you what is one really, really cool thing they did find um, was their, the influence on detectability of having fed a snake. Yes. Which was obviously one of the main this things awesome. they set out to do. Being as it was an invasive species which is savagely damaging um you know the ecology stuff is cool but it's in a non-native environment so you can't get too excited about it but um yeah this this detectability thing is awesome so they did 86 nights of trapping where they put a little mouse in a mouse prison which a snake can get into but the mouse can't get out oh my gosh a prison um, within a prison yeah like, seriously yeah you're locked in here so, with uh, me mouse what What sounds more like delicious, though, than a mouse locked in a tiny cage, just go and get it, vulnerable, delicious. It's pretty dark. Um, But yeah, so they did that. So they had um, 86 trapping nights, 52 nights of visual searching, and in all that time, they only saw two of the fed snakes, um, both of which were caught by hand. Unsurprisingly, they didn't go into the mouse traps when they were already full up. Mm. They're not that greedy. Um, And both of those captures were actually on the night after they were released, so... There's some suggestion that they might have just been looking around for a suitable place to yeah. go and digest. In contrast to the fed snakes, the ones which hadn't been fed, they had 11 trap captures and 16 hand captures. Um, so that represents nearly 10 times uh, more likelihood of catching an unfed snake than a fed snake, Yeah, which is massive and com- like... You know, that is undeniable evidence that they're harder to find when they've been eating. And it
0: has a direct implication for future survey efforts. If you're surveying in an area with higher prey density, the detectability of your snakes will likely be lower because there's a greater chance of them having eaten in the past uh, one to five days. I mean, this is something that we should mention is it takes about one to five days for this size of meal to be digested enough that activity rates tend to move back towards what you'd expect for an unfed snake yeah yeah yeah
1: you can see that on their diagrams like day Mm. one virtually all the snakes which had eaten are doing nothing day two day two there's actually less movement than day one probably because they've found somewhere suitable to chill out and day three you start to see a bit more coming in four five it's starting to get back and then it's by day six and seven that you start to see activity beginning to return to normal after this like mammoth digestion effort
0: yeah yeah
1: um,
0: but um yeah you say they're doing yeah, nothing this... but actually their bodies are going crazy digesting this stuff well that yeah they're having that intense whoa <laughs> food, <laughs> like,
1: ah! <laughs> my heart's exploding yeah it must be a hell of a time but i have to say um That's got ramifications, obviously, in Guam, because anything they're going to try and do, like poisoning bait and stuff, they're going to have to repeat it on daily, you know, on a weekly basis, or at least try and factor that in. So if you're going to try and drop poison bait to kill snakes, you're going to have to do it a few times over the course of a few week period so that you actually make sure you've got the ones which have eaten, especially when you're considering they're trying to trap these snakes and, you know, eradicate these snakes in Guam, where A population of birds and things like that is probably beginning to sort of equalize with the addition of the snakes. But if they enter another new novel environment where prey densities are high and they're not used to novel snakes, there's a potential that they could be getting meals so easily that they're going to be spending virtually all of their time in this digestion period, making catching them extremely difficult. Yeah, or you have got to find them different
0: ways. Yeah, uh, Baiting stuff isn't going to work for a fed snake, so you're going to actually have to find shelter sites that are being used mm. by them
1: yeah and this is where it'd be good to have like more novel methods like maybe have a little some kind of arboreal creature
0: on a lead that can find snakes ah <laughs> oh, so you're thinking of training like a like a mouse lean or, eye- or something And the, yeah, An eye-eye, eye-eye. that's perfect they can scoop <laughs> them out like with their fingers, fingers. <laughs> yeah come out here little tree snake yeah we need weaponized eye eyes oh i'm down i'm down for that yeah oh yeah mm. that's that's
1: brilliant yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, that is that is really the main finding of the paper, that these snakes are less active when they eat, which seems obvious, but until you actually study it and the level of detail they've used to study it here is super cool. I
0: think that's the kicker is you see these, the, the figures especially, like it is just so wonderfully clear that you can see this high activity and low activity contrast between fed yeah. and unfed. Like, okay, we're dealing with, well, actually, no, a, a damn good sample size too, actually. But it's, it yeah, is like so, so snakes. clear and so consistent and mm. I think is actually probably going to found to be quite general across a lot of snakes. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, yeah. you're dealing with very fundamental uh, biology questions, really, when it comes to this. Is It's meal, digestion, meal. The, the sort of size and length of uh, pattern will probably vary between species, but the actual pattern of having these uh, what do they call it? Submergent submergence times? Submergent behaviour. Submergent yeah. behaviour is going to be consistent across a lot of a lot of snake species.
1: Yeah. That's such a spooky phrase submergent behaviour. Oh I think it's cool. It makes me think, yeah. of, makes me think of Lake Placid oh. a <laughs> big crocodile submerge. Really it's a giant boiga. Terrifying. They're giant anyway. They're, they're three pretty, meters long. They're pretty huge. They're cool snakes, though. I like them. I think they're actually really pretty. I think the name brown tree snake's quite unfair. They've got those nice big orange eyes.
0: Yeah, they've got charm, don't
1: they? Yeah, when they're babies, they're a nice colour as well. They're kind of orangey-yellow, brown, blot, sort of... I don't know how you describe that pattern. Sort of patchy. Mottled. (laughs) Mottled. Yeah, mottled. They're mottled. Um, but yeah, cool snakes, uh, shame they're widely vilified and a terrible menace, but you know, they're just, they're, they're just getting down to business.
0: Yeah. They're damn good it. at they it. They don't know
1: they're an invasive species. Um, yeah. There was some other stuff about um, sort of uh, the snakes which have been eating hide higher in trees and they're more likely to use uh, screw palms and trees than snakes which had not eaten. See, so there you go. That's another also...
0: cool aspect. If you are surveying for sheltering snakes, you've now got something a little there bit were... more targeted.
1: Yeah, you have. Yeah, they seem to prefer the the screw palm. The screw palm. It sounds like there's just like loads of big flat leaves coming out of a a, a sort of high palm. So I think they shelter between the two mm. flat leaves, which um, could be a relatively easy place to go and look for snakes if you've got a ladder and some tenacity. I don't know. And time. But then they're screw a water palms. leaves. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're dangerous though because they're called screw palms. Sounds a bit scary. Maybe they're really sharp. Yeah.
0: Maybe that's best left for the eye yeah, leave it to the I.I., mate. Just get it up there. Chuck it a grub or two. Don't... Uh, they, They've they got no rice. Right. You know, they... <laughs> <laughs> they eat other things other than grubs. You can mix it up with a little bit of fruit and vegetation. My eye works 14-hour days. Never complains.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they can only do 12. They hate the light. They wouldn't work in a day. No, bed. just give it sunglasses. Ah, uh, yeah, Sunglasses now and I a big cup it. of coffee. Yeah, and then illuminate It's night time so that it thinks it's daytime and goes to sleep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you only want it working <laughs> half, I would say you have them in, working in shifts.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's this paper. Very cool. Very nice. Really um, cool. Yeah. I really yeah. enjoyed it.
0: It was it was so incredibly thorough. Yeah. And yeah, shows some good. really, really clear, cool patterns. Yeah. And it gave us an
1: excuse to learn about what happens to snakes when they eat, which is just absolutely bonkers. Yeah, that was wicked. Really, I think people need to use that in outreach more. Like, I've never really heard anyone talking about no. that. But, like, kids would be blown away by this stuff. Stomach getting twice the size. Yeah, like, come on. That's, I mean, that's so relatably... You can really imagine. Because you're familiar with the way your guts feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think that's really cool. Um, sweet. So, should we move on to the most anticipated brand new species to science surrounding herpetofauna in podcasting
0: known to man? It's <laughs> a uh, species of bi-week are you talking about? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a lead up. Okay, so we have a remarkable new species of coral snake of the Mycurus heparicae species group from the Brazilian Amazon. Written by Bernard, Tursi, Abeg and Franco. Published in Salamandra, 2018. Yes. Nice and new.
1: Yeah, brand new. Um, and a remarkable new species. So remarkable, in fact, that we're going to remark upon it. Ah, oh. it's quite <laughs> remarkable. So, um, before we talk about this specific coral snake, coral snakes, I just want to say, are very cool.
0: Like You're going to get no arguments here.
1: They're one of the coolest things, though. They're lapids, right? They're super dangerous. Obviously, not necessarily dangerous unless you muck about them. But they're they're venomous. they got proper venom. They're tiny, often. And they're also extremely bright-coloured. They're just amazing. They're like and, uh, poison uh, dart frogs should... of the snake world. Yeah, they definitely are. And I've never actually seen one. I've never seen
0: one in the wild. Have you ever seen one in the wild? Uh, not a neotropical one. But I've seen coral snakes. What have you seen? Um... The one that's where you are? Sibonophus. Is it Sibonophus? Oh, there's
1: Calliophus maculaceps, which is the small spotted coral snake. Yep. One of them was spotted
0: while I was there, but I didn't see it. Yes, I've seen that one.
1: <laughs> wow, that's
0: cool. That's really cool. What, is, what am I thinking of with Sibonophus then? Why am I getting that confused? Oh, I'm not sure. I don't know what that... I don't Honestly, Sibonophus, I don't know what that is. Hold up, I've got a... Why have I... They're not even a lapids, they're colubrids. Why have I got this confused? The many-toothed snakes. It's because it ends in fists. It's because they're also coral snake mimics. Oh, they do actually look similar. Yes. Yeah, they do. That's why I'm getting them confused.
1: Mate, yeah, they really do actually look very, very similar. Nice. Okay, well... Mate, if being tricked by a snake's mimicry is an excuse to get a scientific name wrong, I think it's the best excuse going.
0: Oh, it's just... <laughs> it, it's, it's the little ones that you don't see very frequently.
1: Yeah, well, that's it. There's so many species, you can't really, like, you know, keep um, track of them yeah, all. It's not relevant the brown they're not ones popping up. are
0: a little bit tricky. Uh, yeah. yeah, even in
1: extensive surveys, I never saw one, so they're... I think they're probably mostly fossorial, and that's largely why. And they probably like forest as well. After that know.
0: one time, one was found in the bathroom, but... You know? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you gotta go. Um, but yeah. Uh, so this is mycruis hempricai is a species group found across the northern half of the continent of South America. There were two species, autonai and hempericae. um One was well, it would they were originally two subspecies, but then autonai was elevated to a species in 2016. Um, and then they've just now discovered this more southern species so hemp guy is kind of more east, alternized west and this one slots in down south mm. um, yeah it's a cool looking snake uh, what does it look like, should we talk about what it looks like? Uh, it looks
0: like one of them like lizards without legs and with a face <laughs> that looks like a <laughs> snake's face no, it's, yeah. it's largely yeah. dark um, like a sort of deep, slightly iridescent Black, grey, almost sort of gunmetal yeah. grey. Um, which one am I looking at? The top one. Uh, yeah. Has these nice, slim white stripes. Uh, not particularly frequently. What have we got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten mm-hmm. along the, the body. And yeah. then I suppose the most charming bit is it's got these lovely little bits of orange on the underside of its chin and underside of its tail. So it's got yeah. a little bit of that. I don't know which end's my head. Well, I mean, yeah. I suppose it knows, but it's trying to make you think that you don't know.
1: It has. It's got a really cute little red face.
0: Yeah, she's got very sweet little faces anyway, because they're quite—they're not massive snakes, but they've got quite dumpy, round snake <laughs> <Yeah>. faces. <laughs> they got little blunt heads. Yeah, they?
1: they're cute. <laughs> yeah, and then then the top, like you say, is kind of plain, but the underneath, it's got the kind of more traditional coral snakiness, where there's like. Sort of, there are red blotches, mm. and they are in between. Because one of the characters that used to define the species is the number of triads, which is like the number of three color blocks. But I couldn't, I couldn't for the life of me work out what they were talking about with these triads, looking at the dorsal surface, because there's only two colors, and I was trying to work out where they draw the line. And then I looked at the underneath, and it kind of made a bit
0: more sense. Hmm. Uh actually, where do they? By its lower number of body triads.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, I suppose it's it's dividing it by where it repeats. So as I just yeah, said, with, exactly. like, yeah, with six or ten white stripes, then the but white stripes... But then they say there's are... only like...
1: The white stripes aren't the descriptor though because they say there's only five and in that photo there's ten. Because there's triads, there's got to be three of them, right? It's confused me for quite a long time until I, thought, I looked underneath and yeah, there's like one, two, three, four, five underneath. So, I think the triad, actually, in this snake is referring to, like, white, black, white, red, white, black, and then it starts again. Oh. Isn't that confusing? Isn't that confusing? Yeah. um,
0: Yes. No, you're right. That's the way they've defined it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you look at the other individuals or the other species below, and you've got, like, a double white, yellow, double white, yellow and things like yeah, that exactly. so there are just more lines anyway yeah so it would make sense that there's also more triads by extension so you, if you want to ID the snake in the
1: wild quickly you need to flip it over <laughs> tickle it yeah give it a little tickle under that red chin it'll roll right over and uh, you can see the triads which are very pretty
0: little red belly blobs mm. or put it on a let it wait for it to go over like a glass coffee table and lie underneath
1: Mm. yeah Or wait
0: till it's asleep and it will be upside down. (laughs) Yes, because as we all know, that's that's the point of the aposematic signaling. Because it flips on its belly and it scares everybody off. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so what do they
1: call this new animal? They called it uh, Micrurus boikera, which is... Uh, a Tupi Guarani name. Uh, Tupi Guarani is like a big, massive group of tribal languages in South America. And, um, yeah, it means coral snake in local dialects. So that makes a lot of sense. They named it after a local dialect. I can get on board with that massively. I think that's super cool. Yep. Um, Yeah. And it refers to the the coloration, apparently, coral, because coral is like a pinky. I never realized that that's why coral snakes are called coral snakes, because the pinky corally color.
0: Yeah, Uh I'm I'm less keen on the name coral snake, but uh, it's certainly charming. I don't know,
1: regardless, because you know how coral is like really sharp. If you accidentally touch it with your foot, it cuts
0: you. Yeah, but it's also <laughs> naming an animal after another animal, and fundamentally oh, we are counter God, to we. Oh I didn't even realize. I never even considered coral as an animal, Ben. you have completely yeah, weird. but it is, isn't it? But it's a colour more, it's a colour raw, right? Like, if you said, if it was called, like, an orange... Well, what do you think came first, the coral or the colour coral? The yeah, colour's named that, after the animal as well. Yeah, but by that
1: logic, by that logic, though, anything orange would be named after a fruit. Hmm. Mm. I don't know. I, I think, don't know about I think in that. this instance, for me personally, I actually give it a pass. Like, because right. it's not like, yeah, that's hypocritical though, isn't it? Because, I don't know. I don't know. I see, I see basically Ben, I think you're making a valid point. Yeah. But I think it's going to cause me too much angst if I, if I, from now on, dislike called coral.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to press you, but uh, (laughs) if you were to find a group of snakes that were largely black, yellow, white, red, bits of orange, kind of cute, and venomous what would what would you call them what would be the uh sort of common group name humbug snake humbug snakes
1: Hmm. and it would have good connotations of like the night before christmas as well because they're kind of grumpy maybe
0: (laughs) oh no you don't want to make people think they're grumpy then they'll be
1: unduly persecuted (laughs) yeah you may be right um but yeah, so I know when we were talking before the podcast, we were, men- well, I think, I can't remember, I think you said it, there wasn't any uh, genetic evidence that they are new species.
0: Yeah, it was all morphometric, all coloration, and to be fair, geographic separation, because yeah. they have a nice map of where the different uh, comparative species have come from. And, you know, the new ones are nicely uh, grouped at the bottom there. Yeah. Yeah, they
1: are. They're, they You know, they've got very different numbers of ventral scales and triads, yeah. and they are separate geographically. However, they could still potentially be genetically virtually identical to one of the other species. Yeah, it would. Just,
0: it would seem unlikely. It would seem, it would seem unlikely. It would be improbable. It but would just nice I, to have that bit of genetics backing it up, right?
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It
1: wouldn't surprise me though.
0: You know, being. <sighs> morphology being what it is yeah well, but... well the whole idea of species being a little bit funny anyway isn't it <laughs> what if... is one what no one knows Who? yeah what's <laughs> i barely know what a snake is let alone what two snakes are <laughs> uh,
1: but regardless yeah a cool new snake cool new coral snake um, yeah. we didn't we couldn't find a new
0: arboreal species but um oh yeah but then we also found this one and we stopped looking
1: yeah we did because it was pretty Yeah, yeah cool sweet uh that just about concludes a species by week um
0: any other business any other business yes we have a correction oh which i am opening Let's hear it. right now bear with me <laughs> correction incoming <laughs> so this correction comes from Yannick. and it was me butchering uh the, the whole species thing with all those little little italian frogs Pelophylax. Yeah, so I was saying that one of the native ones was a subspecies of... Uh, I'll, I'll recap from the beginning, actually. Um, Italy, there's an invasive slash introduced frog, uh, Pellophylax cut Uh The worry is that it will harm native ones, which are Pelophylax lessenae. And as I said, I said Pelophylax cut mulleri escalatus. And saying that it was a subspecies. And the reason I did that was because you've got P dot, KL dot, and then the what I presume to be the subspecies epithet. Well, it isn't. Um, number one, the KL isn't italicized. So that should have clued me onto something going on. Second, why you would abbreviate Kurt Mulleri to KL, I don't know. Because <laughs> you wouldn't. It would just be K. So I don't know what I was... I was just... I don't know, reading fast and just like... I, I thought it was weird that they were dealing with subspecies stuff and being like, why does it matter? But still didn't spot this. But the point is that KL comes from klepto, um, which so basically it's a species that uses others as sexual hosts. So when you're looking at a species, is a little bit shaky because you've got uh, hybridization through... There's gene processes, there's gene stealing Yeah there's gene yeah. stealing going on So it, it, everything gets a little bit muddled But the point is that that is not Kurt Mullerai That is uh, Pelophylax uh, Escalatus God I'm just going to shut up I don't know why I'm trying to interject A yeah? is, <laughs> is fine But it probably is <laughs> crossing with Escalatus at some point No sorry Esculettes is, is a hybrid of a and uh really oh, Buntus. Boy. Oh Jesus. So there's a, what's going on? Look, basically there's a there's a whole mess of frogs in Italy, but then Kurt Mullerai <laughs> is separate. Okay. And these ones are <laughs> actually native okay, they're hybridizing amongst each other, but they are there, and they're Italian frogs that have been there presumably a long time. And having Kurt Mullerai and coming in and pushing them out of the way might not be particularly wanted.
1: Mm. Very interesting, because there's that example of salamanders where, I think it was Californian salamanders, where, I think we might have talked about on the podcast briefly, where the new salamander was introduced and it was just chilling out. It wasn't too bad of an invasive species, it was just kind of hanging around. But then it interbred with a salamander that was already there, and the hybrids they produced were just like these ginormous monstrosities that ate everything. Yeah. Um, and then they became the dominant species in the area, this hybrid. So yeah essentially just a new species and that is potentially one of the more sort of um subversive damaging effects of invasives like the muddying of gene pools or the creation of new like super species yeah you
0: never know you never know how these things are going to turn out and if you're introducing it to a frog species that already have some interesting hybridizations going on yeah who knows but uh, that was a mistake um was that, it could, you know, Kurt just separate. Yeah. There you go.
1: Fair play. Thanks, Yannick.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, because that was... Well, it explains a lot, and uh, yeah. <laughs> it's good to get that cleared up. <laughs> and it also <laughs> adds further justification to the paper, because although we were sort of being a bit weirded out, oh, subspecies, why does it matter all that much? It does matter more, because it is a full species. But then you're coming into the, yeah. well what is subspecies compared to species anyway but that's a whole other argument
1: well usually it's just a mechanism of, for humans to say that they look different without being different <laughs>
0: well yeah they you go. but the point was okay maybe that's not a, as big a deal but uh, no i don't think so if it is a, separate a species, species then maybe
1: not. it is hey yeah um cool yeah
0: well, that's a good correction You shouldn't have messed about with frogs. (laughs) I I know, they're always always there to bite you in the back with their little froggy jaws. (laughs) Um, Cool. Anything else? I can't think of anything else. I don't think so. I think hopefully this episode brings us all nicely up to date after house moves and illnesses and various other little delays...
1: Mm. and problems yeah I
0: was I was savagely ill so that's why this one's late <laughs> sorry uh, you know it's a stre- yeah. you know moving house is a big deal and a st- whole stress I'm sure it was one of those cases where your body after having moved house just sort of gave up
1: yeah everything just went kaput yeah but back in action and this podcast only gonna be it's gonna be less than a week late where the one before it was two weeks late so I think we should be on track to get the next one out on time I, oh absolutely yeah hey but this one's cool it's about snakes so the fact that it's a few days late (laughs) it is what it is apologies but it is what it is (laughs) snakes are the best all right sweet so uh yeah i think that just about wraps it up i think so yeah unless you got anything so if you no, so if you want to get in touch with us you can uh like us on facebook.com slash highlights we're on twitter at herb highlights uh, or you can get in touch with us directly via email, highlights at gmail.com um, Yeah, just say anything. Give us a correction, or just send us an email saying hello. Um, <laughs> and yeah, what else? There's one
0: more thing. Uh, is there? No, that's it. I don't know. I sort of phased out with all the with all the times you said herb highlights. So I'm, I'm yeah. My, the point is not. that those things are all connected to the other things. So if you find one of them, the chances are you can get to all of them. There's a pair of hyperlinks. Cool. All right, yeah, well, in that case, thanks for listening. Sweet. Thank you for listening.
1: This video, can I watch it? Oh yeah. Here we go. Oh wow. Oh, okay. We got an introduction from a man. Sorry, man. I I just want to see the snakes. Okay. Oh wow. Oh wow. Oh, those fish don't stand a chance being poured into that no. narrow, shallow pool. Oh, no. <laughs> Not a chance. Oh
0: no, they're all they're all descending.
1: Well, wow, man. If you didn't like snakes, this would freak you out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's got, um, oh my it's God, got a sense it's of the, the, uh, the iguanas running away from the races in uh, yeah. whatever that was, Planet Earth 2. And once they get a fish, they like sail off with it.
1: Yep. They just lift their head really high and start bowling around. Oh, that's a really cool video. Wow. What an awesome species.